0: is Bible Minute, a weekly video where we study the Bible and try to let it say what it says. Uh, We are in week number seven of our study of Exodus, and as I mentioned at the beginning of every one of those videos, uh, none of them are truly meant to be understood on their own except for maybe the first one. Uh, Context is everything. Making sure you understand the worldview is really, really important when it comes to the Bible. So uh, if you're new here, go back, start this playlist over, whether you're watching here on YouTube or you're uh, you're listening to a podcast uh, there'll be a playlist uh, no matter where you you're consuming this study at Uh, But make sure you you know the context, make sure you understand the the influences that Moses has had on his life, what his upbringing, how it's changed the way he acts, how it changes his worldview, and how that continues to evolve. Because as we we get to today's study, we're going to see that he has a major issue that is uh, directly related to his upbringing that he has to overcome before he can really act on what God has called him to. So assuming you understand all that and you've studied all that... uh, Let's get into it. So as far as placing ourselves back in the train of thought of the story of Exodus thus far, Moses has just had the burning bush moment. Like he's he's talked to God. God has heard his excuses, but God doesn't care. God is going to do something big with him. He's going to use Moses to lead the people of Israel out of slavery into freedom and taking the next step towards, towards uh, God's rescue plan for the whole world. And that requires God sending a message. That's important to, to our understanding of, of why God is doing what he's doing here, that it's, it's more than just setting people free. It's, it's about sending a message and making himself known to the world. Um, so with all that being said, Moses has just uh, finished talking with God, and now he has, to, uh, he has to go back to Egypt. So that's where our story picks up. Starting in uh, verse 18 of chapter 4, it says this. It says, Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons, and had them ride on a donkey, and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart, so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to, ki- to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met with him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people, and the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. So, there is a thing that that you don't really want to do as a Christian. You, you should do it. I, this is kind of something that we as Christians say in tongue-in-cheek, but... But it's a dangerous prayer, right? You've heard people talk about praying dangerous prayers, and the first one that comes to mind is praying for patience. You ask God to give you more patience. And we joke and we laugh, we say, oh, you don't want to do that, why? Because God won't zap you with patience. He puts you in situations where your patience will grow. That's why it's a dangerous prayer, because all of a sudden you'll start facing situations where you have to be patient. Uh, you know, it, it's it's not something that, that God just has a track record of doing. As a matter of fact, we I don't know that we've ever seen that God just zaps somebody with some new quality or characteristic. God God doesn't tend to do that that we've seen. Again, He can do that. We're not putting Him in a box and saying He can't, but the the records that we have of His acting and changing people's lives and changing their countenance and the way they behave and their character, it's it's almost never just a zap. They're like this now. It's almost always through situations, through experiences, through other people and their lives. And so when we read this section about God hardening Pharaoh's heart, it raises some questions. It's, a, it's an outlier in Scripture. It's not the normal. It's not what we see regularly. When, when God changes people's hearts and minds, it tends to be through more organic ways, for lack of a better word. God uses their experiences. He uses their life. So all of a sudden, we see that God is, is directly changing some person's hearts so that they'll go against what God wants. How does that make any sense? Well, I really do believe that, that the Bible should make sense, that it does make sense. To quote Dr. Heiser, that, that yeah, the, your Bible should make sense. If God is like this one way, and all of a sudden he's the complete opposite over here, and it counteracts what we know about him, well, something's not right there. We don't know everything we should know. Your Bible should make sense. And so let's look at what, what God is doing here. Right? Let's look at what this means to harden Pharaoh's heart. First off, as English speakers living you know, 3,500 years later, uh, our understanding of even the basic Organs and what happens there is completely different. Number one, they, they, they didn't have the understanding that we do of, you know, uh, you don't think in your heart. You don't feel in your heart. You don't, you know, think like in your gut, like they, they don't, they didn't understand that. They, they thought that different organs were the different centers of, of emotion and thinking. And their uh, ancient Hebrews, anytime you're in the Old Testament, somebody talking about their heart, they would have used the word mind if they were writing it today. The thinking center of the ancient Hebrew, they, their understanding of it was the brain, not the heart. For us, we think of our heart, we talk about our emotions, right, our, our, our feelings. But actually, the, the the where they would have said the thinking center was, they would have said their gut, Right. And we still kind of do this. Say, you ever heard somebody say, you know, I have a gut feeling about this, that, you know, it's in their stomach, it's in their gut. That's what they would have said. They, if they were talking about what we would use the word heart for, they would have used the word stomach for. And in, in, in the New Testament, we see that, that Jesus was moved in his guts. So the word is splagna. You might have heard a sermon or two about that. splogna. it's a really fun word to say. But they, they still had that same idea that the, the emotion center was your stomach, your guts, and the thinking center was your heart. So when it says that, that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, it's not saying that it made him emotionless. It, it was talking about his thinking. It's more akin to praying for patience, or, or praying for courage, or praying for wisdom. That's the thinking center. That's what we're praying for. That's what Pharaoh had changed, was his mind, not his emotions. And so we have to understand that as as our first, that we're not talking about Pharaoh's emotional state. We're talking about his mind was changed. And so that, that takes it in a completely different direction. If his mind is hardened, that means it's made up. It's not that he's emotionless. It's that his mind is made up. It's strengthened to go this direction instead of that one. And that's what the word hardening there truly means. It, it, the, the Hebrew word there, again, I had to look it up. I'm not a Hebrew scholar or anything like that, um, but I read the guys who are, and they said that this word here is, is, it's hardening is not a bad translation, but it's, if you put it in the context of heart equaling what we would call our mind, well, then, yeah, okay, it's, it's, a, it's a commitment to a direction, not an emotional state. And so we see that that God has influenced Pharaoh to change his mind, to choose to go this direction instead of that direction, to not let the people go and instead keep them under his thumb. But we also see that Pharaoh's will is involved. If you read chapter 8 verse 15 or chapter 8 verse 32, we see that Pharaoh is the one who chooses to harden his heart or determine his mind, strengthen his mind, harden his mind, however you want to think about it. Pharaoh's will is involved here. It's not just God acting on Pharaoh's mind. His mind is also involved, and we see that throughout the, the account. Like I said, 815 and 832, go look them up yourself. Pharaoh is is the one choosing to go this direction. So I think this is much more a pray for patience situation, not that God zapped Pharaoh with just the the, the all of a sudden the direction that he doesn't want to go with what God wants. I think God is allowing Pharaoh and influencing Pharaoh to choose the difficult path. And that leads to another big question. Why? Why would God do this? If God wants to set the people free, why on earth would he make the person who can let that happen be stubborn and not to do it? Why would why would God do that? Again, the Bible makes sense. And you got to place yourself back in the context. Who is God? How well is he known at this point? Well, there's no law. There's no people. Like the people of Israel, God's chosen people, started with Abraham, went to his sons. Isaac went to Jacob. Jacob had a bunch of kids. But they're not a nation. They're not a well-known people group. And they move to Egypt and they grow and they multiply. But still, they're, they're probably just over a million or so people. But they're slaves. They're not well-known. The, the religion of Yahweh is not being propagated. It's not. God is unknown in the world at this point. And so we have this moment where God wants to announce himself on the stage. And again, it gets back to that whole reason for the book of Exodus. Why why, why is it being communicated? It's being communicated to show that God is the sovereign, all-powerful, indisputable ruler of the universe. And he cares about his people to the point of acting in terrifyingly powerful ways on their behalf. That's the message that's being communicated here. And so when we see that there's this, 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 this battle, right, between the most powerful empire on the planet, specifically the most, person in the, the most powerful person in the most powerful empire on the planet, versus this unknown God of a group of slaves. And so when we get to the plagues, we see that this is, this is about the message more so than about freeing the people. That will be done. Nothing thwarts God's purposes. But God is doing it in a way to announce Himself and announce His people, to show that God is real and that God is moving and acting, and nothing can stop Him. I mean, the plagues, when we look at it, it's, it's a really interesting study. Each plague is a direct attack on the gods of Egypt, supposedly the most powerful gods in the world. I mean, that's that's the way the ancient worldview worked for until relatively recently. Everybody was an Ehenotheist. Every nation, every people group, sometimes every city had their own gods. And if that, that place was powerful or dominant or won a battle, it's because their gods were more powerful than the gods of the place they defeated. And so for Egypt to be the most powerful place on the planet, it meant their gods were the most powerful. But all of a sudden, this god of a slave people defeats them? Yeah, it's, it's sending a very clear message that the ancient world would have shuddered at. And so that gets us to the next part of this passage where we see another really confusing story. Moses tells Jethro, he says, hey, I'm going to go visit my family. I'm going to go do this thing. He goes, he takes his family, takes his kid. He's had more than just Gershom at this point, but he's, he's married to one of Jethro's daughters, uh, Zipporah, and they, they're on their way. And along the way, we see a really crazy story happen. God shows up and he tries to kill Moses and as he's trying to kill Moses, Zipporah circumcises her son, Gershom, who's probably an adult at this point. Uh, tradition says that Moses was in Midian 40 years, so he's, he's probably more than just a little kid by now. And when she circumcises him, she, she says this is the, the bridegroom of blood, and she touches his feet or his genitals. The word's kind of confusing there. Uh, and God lets go of Moses, and Moses doesn't die. And that's kind of all we have about it. It's again, it's weird. And uh, why did why why does this why why did this happen? Why did God want to kill Moses? He, Moses is a bit of a, a a dichotomy, right? Remember from his upbringing that that he never really felt at home. He wasn't Egyptian enough for the Egyptians. He wasn't Hebrew enough for the Hebrews. He was. Just kind of this mishmash, like, nomad, migrant person who never really felt at home anywhere. He goes to Midian. He thinks that's his home. He builds a home there. He builds a family there. And God says, nope, got to go back to that place where you'd never felt like you were at home. And Moses is just kind of caught between worlds again. But when you don't commit to a path, you tend to struggle. Like, when you're trying to walk two paths at once, you're never truly on either one. At this point, again, remember, there's no law, there's no rules, there's no compulsory sacrifices, all the things that we will associate with the people of Israel, none of that existed yet. There was one rule, and that was sons were circumcised. That's it. God, when he made the covenant, the promise with Abraham, where he said, Abraham, I'm, dad, you and your descendants will be my family, you'll be my people, here is the covenant. That you will worship me and only me. And the world will know that this is the sign that you are my people by circumcision of the men. That's the one rule. That's the one thing that showed that they were obedient. There was no laws. There was no dress. There was no anything else. There was no food laws. There was nothing else that we typically associate with the people of Israel that made them stand out. God would do that. That's part of what the law was. It taught them to be different from the people around them. But this was the one thing. And we see that Moses didn't do it. He didn't circumcise his firstborn son. Now, I assume the rest of his sons were. It mentions as he has other kids. And I'm assuming that they were, were were circumcised. But for some reason, the firstborn one wasn't. I don't know if that was a a tradition thing. Maybe mom didn't want to do it. Maybe father-in-law didn't want to do it because you know he was going to be a Midianite, not a Hebrew. I I don't know. Maybe Moses was just at a point in his life where he, when when Gershom was born where he didn't really associate as uh, identify as a Hebrew anymore. We don't know, but we know it didn't happen, and that was something that God commanded his people to be obedient about. And so we see that God tries to kill Moses until he becomes obedient, even though God has this calling on his life that he's going to be used as a tool to, to set the people free. Like, it doesn't make sense for God to kill the guy that he just spent all this time and effort coercing and, 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 and convincing that he had this job to do to take up this calling. I think that tells us what kind of attack this was. I think Moses would have died had wifey Zipporah not done what she'd done, but I don't think God was really trying to kill him. I think this was a wake-up call. I think this was a moment where God needed Moses to truly commit to the path that God had laid in front of him. No longer, he couldn't walk two paths anymore, three paths anymore. He couldn't choose to go two different directions. He had to choose this one path. And that meant obedience. That meant obedience loyalty that meant faith that meant trusting in god this was a wake-up call to moses because if god really wanted to kill moses he would have just been dead we see that happen a lot actually throughout uh the old testament and sometimes the new testament of ananias and sapphira when they lied not just to the other members of the church about how much money they gave and how much money they got from selling the field you know, if if you don't know where this is, the, the story goes that in Acts, uh, after Jesus, the apostles were, were kind of establishing the church, and people were selling stuff and giving it to the church, and Ananias and Sapphira were this couple that sold a field, and they lied about it. And it's not so much that they lied to the apostles or to the people, it's that they lied to God. They tried to lie to God, and they dropped dead when they were confronted with it. God could have killed Moses here in, instantly, but he didn't. This was a wake-up call. This was a moment to get Moses to commit. To get his family to commit. And I think they did. And as we wrap up and we get to our parallels in the New Testament section, I think this most closely parallels uh, Peter and the rooster. You know, the night that Jesus was arrested, was tortured, was was beaten, uh, Jesus told Peter, hey, tonight you're going to deny me. You're going to pretend like you don't know me. And you're going to do it three times before the rooster crows sure enough, that's exactly what Peter did. Now, by world standards, by by any other organization, especially a revolutionary organization, which Jesus' movement was, just not in a violent sense, Peter would have been expelled. He betrayed the leader. He denied knowing the leader, and there was not a good reason to do it. Yes, he was scared, but we look at the circumstances in which he denied Jesus. One was to a slave girl, somebody that even if she had evidence in her hand that he had been with Jesus, nobody would have listened to her. Peter was utterly and completely going in the wrong direction. He tried to go through two, on two paths. One, which was the safe path that didn't let people know he followed Jesus, but he still was there. He still wanted to be close to Jesus. And we see that Jesus afterwards wasn't harmful with him, wasn't harsh with him. But after the resurrection, that Jesus had a conversation with him there on the side of the the lake and, and told him, hey, feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. He was telling Peter, hey, you messed up. You were trying to go two different paths, but now it's time to just commit to the one. Follow me. Do do what I have for you. Commit to the calling which I've placed on your life. And I think that's something that a lot of us need to hear every once in a while. We need to be reminded of that, that it's easy to get sucked into living the way the world wants us to and then living out our calling, living out our Christian life. That it's easy to look one way around our Christian friends or one way at church and then another way around our, our friends and coworkers at work or around our, our friends elsewhere. God is calling us to walk down a singular path, and when we try to walk down both, it's dangerous and it leads to pain. It leads to suffering. If you have any questions, reach out. Otherwise, I hope this was helpful and encouraging to you. Uh, and we'll see you next time.